Well, hello, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I want to do a shout out for our podcast, iTunes Reviewer. This is what he or she said. I've been listening to this podcast for many years, and it never disappoints. Michael Blanc and Garrett Lynch are super knowledgeable about multifamily real estate investing, and they bring on top guests, all who have a different perspective and bring new ideas to the table every episode. Thank you for that. Uh, if you love the show, we'd love to see your review on iTunes and uh, shout you out in the next episode. I also want to point out our mentoring program. We've had probably one student do a deal every single week here over the last, I don't know, about three months, it seems like. And uh, it's very common, by the way, to joint venture. Almost all these students are joint venturing with each other. And check us out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You can check out our mentoring program. You're going to be working one-on-one with a full-time syndicator who not only syndicates full-time, but has quit their job and now is helping others do the same thing. Schedule a call with us and see if mentoring is right for you. That's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And with that, let's bring on our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on? What's going on, Michael? How you doing? Yeah, that's good. So I talked about joint venturing a lot. Why is it so common that joint venturing is so common in multifamily? Yeah, joint venturing is, I mean, it's just a part of the, the business in general. So there was a period of time where I didn't want to joint venture uh, at all. And I was just kind of out there. I'm like, I just want to do my own deals, but I had this appetite for bigger deals. And the reality is, is that you have a, uh, you know, you need different things. You need a balance sheet. Uh, you need you need to have the ability to raise enough money. You need a lot of different components, and and sometimes one person doesn't have the the financial wherewithal to be able to to handle stuff. In addition to the operational side of the business. Well, you talk about the financial stuff, right? So this is liquidity, net worth, that kind of stuff, but also strengths and weaknesses. I mean, you know, I've observed that most people, there's two kinds of major roles. One is a deal finder and one is a capital raiser. You know, and the deal finders tend to be more numbers oriented, more detail oriented, more organized. They also are more introverted and the capital raisers are more extroverted. They have, they love relationships. They have no problem talking to strangers and they're much more comfortable in that. Can, and, and at the same time, you know, the sight of a spreadsheet makes them want to break, break out in a, in a cold sweat. And these two kinds of individuals tend to find themselves in syndications. Yeah. And those people, you know, they'll find each other through the networking events or, or just, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it is, is the conferences, obviously. But what you tend to see is, are these people come together and then they, they go so much further faster. And the multifamily deals are often big enough and scalable enough where you can fit those partners into the deal. And it still makes financial sense for everyone to stay involved. Yeah, so Jen Fornching, if you're thinking of doing this on your own, uh, you will be successful, but it's going to take you a lot longer and, and a lot longer to scale. And this brings us to our next guest, Edna Keep, who's an investor in Canada, and she uses joint venturing to not only invest in Canada, but more importantly, in the United States. And so there's a few points that we cover on the show here today, you know, how you're joint venturing, and but more importantly, how do you invest out of area? Because we hear a lot, my gosh, how do I invest our area? We talk a lot about that on the show, because Edna obviously is out of area. And so the way you approach investing is quite a bit different than when you're back in backyard versus out of area. And also, how do you overcome challenges? Because in foreign investors have a whole set of challenges uh, that need to be overcome. And so we kind of delve deep into that entrepreneurial spirit. Let's get in the show now with Edna Keep. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast 
hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just getting started or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. Edna, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, tell us a little bit how you kind of got started in real estate. Sure. Uh, you know what? I used to be a financial advisor. I had clients coming in uh, wanting to redeem money out of their mutual funds to buy real estate. Yeah. And you go, really? You want to buy into real estate when you could be in mutual funds? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they said, you know, really, you should um, check it out. So I did. I went to an evening class that Robert Kiyosaki's group put on and then signed up for a three-day event after that. And within 18 months, I could no longer sell mutual funds. Uh, so I went into real estate full-time. Uh, in 18 months, we had 50 doors and we're making 5000 a month in cash flow and we've never looked back. No, that's amazing. So what was the kind of the, some of the first deals that or that you've done? Like, how did you get started? A lot, of, a lot of people start with single family houses or duplex. Some people try to go big. Like, what was your <laughs> foray into real estate there? We started small, you know, there were some condos for sale that were about uh, maybe eight blocks from where we lived. It was a condo converted building. It, it would have been an apartment building converted to condos to sell. And that was what was happening in our market right then because we had such a shortage of rental properties. And so we bought two of those. And it was kind of interesting, uh, Michael, because um, one of those, uh, I, I think I've mentioned before, was a single mom at age 16. My oldest daughter had just moved into one one of them. And so I asked the realtor if that particular one was for sale. And it was. So we bought one that was all occupied with a renter that I knew would pay their rent. <laughs> so you got started with a, with a condo. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. And where did it go from there? Well, we ended up buying two at the same time because my daughter got to know the person beside her and said they'd lived there for 17 years. So we thought, well, that's another tenant that's probably going to be there a long time because we were kind of scared of dealing with tenants. We'd heard all the horror stories, you know. And then uh, then we bought a duplex, an up-down duplex. That was the first one we bought with other people's money. The uh, seller ended up uh, financing the full down payment on that. And, and then we just added. We added another condo and a couple more houses. Uh, we started doing, you know, lease options, rent owns, different different uh, things like that. And and after we'd done a few of those, some of them in joint ventures with others because we ran out of the ability to get mortgages. Uh, then we bought a twenty four unit apartment building, and that kind of took us to where we want to be today. That's awesome. How did you get that that, that apartment building done? You said uh, using other people's money. You mentioned seller financing, which of course is a form of other people's money. How did you put together that uh, apartment building deal? Well, uh, at first, the seller did not want to vendor finance. Uh, and we were dealing with a lender. And we got to the point where we could only get a certain amount because they were very under-rented. Like in, in our area, the average rents in that type of building was around 1000 bucks a month. Their average rent was 425 So we could only get 50% financing. So after we found that out and we searched for a while, we came back to them and said, you know, we'll have to hold vendor financing for us while we get the rents up to where they should be. And uh, he agreed eventually. He wasn't open to it at the beginning, but after much talking and many meetings, we got him to do so. So you, you did a lot of this stuff up to this point with seller financing, right? How do you how do you induce someone to do that? And the related question is, why would someone want to do that? 
Well, you know, we find that real estate investors are predisposed to real estate. So one of the questions we ask them is, what are you going to do when you sell your building? And in a lot of cases, it's, you know, they're divorcing, they've got to split up the finances, stuff like that. The ones that we're looking for and the ones we love dealing with are the ones that are wanting to retire. Hmm. And uh, then we just tell them, well, you know, uh, would you consider staying in in the building and financing a portion of it? And we explain what it looks like as a second mortgage and, and stuff like that. Their building's held as collateral. And then they either choose to or not. Well, we get lots. Yeah, it's a good point. If someone's trying to retire, then, you know, they don't want a taxable event and they want income stream. And that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And you you're finding that a lot there's a lot of people that want to sell real estate that are want to retire. It sounds like you almost made a business out of it. Yeah, you know what we've and we, it is it, even that we set it out as a target, Michael. It just started to happen. You know, the people coming to us saying so and so wants to sell. Uh, find out they're like seventy years old. You pretty much know when they're at that age. They're looking at at getting out entirely. And we we were always taught that uh, investors are predisposed investors to real estate. So what are they going to do after they've invested in real estate 20, 30 years? They don't want to go into the stock market or a term deposit. When you guys got started doing this, I'm sure it was kind of rocky in the beginning, trying to figure out how you were almost going to pitch these people. Right? Were were any people skeptical on on this? whole process? And then how did you kind of hone it to get get it to this area where, where it was just a lot easier to, to get these kind of deals done? Well, you know, once we understood the process, Garrett, we found it easy to explain, actually. We just basically said they're in second mortgage position only after the lender, meaning they get paid out before we get anything. And we generally pay like five, six percent interest. And when they compared that to something, you know, in the stock market that's going all over the place or a term deposit, we found it fairly easy. Now, how do you find these kind of deals? Because it, it seems to me like you're not finding these through brokers, or maybe you are, but how are you finding sellers like this? We have found a few through realtors, but we've actually been part of many different real estate investment networks, and we got to be known as people that are buying. And the last few major deals that we've done have all been from our network. So people wanting to avoid realtor fees and the whole idea of sticking a you know a sign in their lawn and their tenants being disturbed uh, and knowing that uh, we'd bought many already uh, got us a reputation, and and so we're we're just brought many by sellers. Yeah, what kind of network? I mean, because I mean, back from the house flipping days, you know, we our network was basically setting up bandit signs, sending out postcards, you know, that kind of stuff. That's how we found the the sellers. And how how, how have you been able to do that? Well, you know, I've established my own network for one because I coach and train people. So that's one way. But we joined local like RIAs, real estate investment groups, and we would go to their live events and just let people know what we're doing. And sometimes the deals would come to us secondhand. So another member would tell us about this member that was selling and 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 come to us that way. And some were just direct, hey, you know, I'm thinking of retiring. Would you look at buying in this particular area? And then things would progress from there. I, I've actually had people phoning me up thinking like that they want to work with me as a coach. And then in the conversation, they they have properties that they want to sell. They want to sell in one area, move to another area or semi-retire, you know, different stuff like that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. So you've done a lot of seller financing. I know you've uh, recently started getting into some larger uh, properties. Let's talk about that. And, and, and has your strategy shifted a little bit? Or are these still seller finance? Talk about some of the more recent larger properties that you've done. 
Uh, well, the larger ones that we just purchased in Memphis, Tennessee, we ended up paying cash for them because it was not really financeable at the way that we wanted them to be. Um, so we raised the investor capital, bought them for cash at like 21600 a door. So really good value. And then just started working on and bringing up the value. Uh, had our, again, raised the money with the, for the renovations. And we haven't done it yet, but our plan is to finance and finance the investor capital out. So, so at one point you started, when you talk about other people's money, you were talking about seller financing initially, but then it sounds like you started getting into raising capital from others. How did you make that transition? Well, I used to be a financial advisor, Michael. So I got re I was really comfortable with talking to people about money and how mm. they could earn returns in in real estate. And you know what? I was actually really good at selling against mutual funds after selling them for 15 years. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people who were unhappy with the stock market were coming to me like they were either referred or told about me. We, we put on different events where we could educate people because I think it's all about the education. So I want to buy some mutual funds, Edna. <laughs> Why is that not a good idea? Well, I'll tell you from my own personal experience, because I invested in mutual funds for 15 years, is every time I felt like, oh, I finally got something going on here, the market would drop. And, and it just drove me crazy. And, and what really drove me crazy is I had people who I'd helped build uh, a nice size portfolio over the years. And then, and it happened to me three cycles in 15 years. And just before they're going to retire, boom, dropped like 40%. And that hurt. That really, really hurt. Because then people who are planning on a lifestyle here had to drop their lifestyle back or work longer. And it was one of the two things. So I like the consistency of real estate. And if people would say to me, like, I'd say, I don't have, I'm not licensed to sell mutual funds anymore. And this is why I chose real estate as my vehicle going forward. And this is why. And then I would go into the whole nine yards of, of what real estate can do for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, you're, you're invest, you mentioned investing in Memphis, but I think you also mentioned before that you're also investing in Canada. But where are you investing right now? And maybe talk about some of the differences investing in Canada and, and the U.S. Okay, sure. So um, when we started, Michael, because we're based in Saskatchewan, the majority of our properties were in Saskatchewan. Also, because of what was happening in our own backyard at the time, our own personal house, just to give you an idea, we started investing in real estate in 2007. From 2002 to 2007, our personal house doubled in value. And so we could see the stuff that was happening and, and the rental market had not caught up to that yet. We bought uh, that first 24 unit at 75,000 a door. Now those same units, uh, we, we ended up condo converting them and selling some of them out at 145. Again, just what was going on in the market at the time. Now those apartment buildings are selling around 100. We wish we would have just kept them. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, I keep talking more about investing in Canada versus, versus US. So the market dictated because at that time, like 2008, 2009, we were actually going to the States a lot looking to invest. 
but we couldn't get financing and we needed to be able to get financing to make it work. And in Saskatchewan, we were easily able to get financing. CMHC financing, which is kind of like your uh, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae type financing. And so we were easily able to get financing here. So we only had to put 15, 20% down. And in the US, we were encouraged to be buying everything with cash. At the beginning, we didn't have that option. So, so we bought mostly around here in central Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba were our biggest purchases. And then now with moving into the US, we're finding deals like the ones in Memphis. We ended up paying cash, as I mentioned, 21600 a door. Lots of upside potential. Again, you have to pay cash because you can't get financing for stuff like that. So that's, I'm sorry, that's, that's a function of that property, right? Or, or was it a function of you investing as an outsider? Or was that the, because the property was so distressed? Or why couldn't you get financing for this deal? Distressed. Yeah. Yeah, it was so distressed. It was highly vacant and very run down. The people that had owned it had hired local management and then just kind of left it for them to run. And they did not do a very good job. And by the time I think they realized, you know, they really had no choice. The, the lender was uh, going to take it away from them if they didn't sell it. So Edna, aside from the financing piece, you, you kind of have two playgrounds. You have the Canadian playground and the American playground. What, what are some other like major differences between the two markets right now that, that you point you in one direction or another, just because I don't know much about the Canadian markets as opposed to the US, but it's always interested me. Pricing is the biggest thing. You know, right now, we have a really hot market in uh, Toronto and Vancouver, because they're like the places that everybody wants to live. And the housing market just keeps going up like exponentially. Houses people paid 300,000 for five years ago are selling for 600,000 now. So people are seeing that play in their own personal home and they're wanting to take advantage of it. So they're starting to look at, you know, buying a rental property, maybe another house or duplex or triplex or multifamily. But in, in those larger centers, the price is absolutely outrageous. So just to give you an idea, in in Toronto, just recently, I was approached uh, by a lady telling me that she would love to be able to refinance her building. So she was told that it's valued at two and a half million dollars. But the most she could get for financing on it was 1.2, uh, of which I think 600,000 was already financed. And she was wondering if I could help her. Fact is, the numbers did not dictate any higher of a mortgage than that. So even though they're told your building's worth two and a half, they can't get financing. That's so interesting. So it's so it sounds like it's a pricing component. And then obviously financing is a huge part of it. So the big question is... How do investors from Canada invest in the U.S.? Like, how how do they logistically figure that out, and how have you figured out that kind of setup? Well, you have to have a power team on the ground uh, wherever you buy. Like, I have, I have students from Toronto buying in Saskatchewan. Well, you have to set up a power team in that area. Same with us; we had to set up a power team on the what's, ground. What's a power team? Power team is like your realtor, your mortgage brokers, your lenders, your renovators, your property managers, all that constitute as your power team. And so you have to build that wherever you're going to be uh, buying. And what we generally do is we find the deal and then we build the power team around that deal. Now, we might start with 
the realtor we bought the deal from uh, or the private person we bought the deal from. And then who do you use for property manager? Who have you used for renovator? Are you happy? Are you unhappy? Interview them ourselves and then just kind of expand it like that. Yeah. So with the power team, that's that's the operational side. But what about like actually getting them into the US? So like, because they're from Canada, obviously. So financing is harder. Do they have to invest into a US LLC? Like, how does that side work exactly? How is it legally done? With us, because we were dealing mostly with Canadian money, we had set up a Canadian corporation that bought the properties in the US in an LLC. So the Canadian corporation owns the LLC. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So Canadian LLC owns corporation, buys into a US LLC. And then there's probably a bunch of legal work. Are there are there company agreements or any of the operating agreements? Are is any of that different as well, or is it just it's kind of pretty close to the same because you just got to detail like what's expected, how everything's going to play out, how it's taxed, and all stuff like that. And because of the way it's set up, our Canadians are taxed in Canadian dollars. So is there something similar to the SEC in Canada? you know, where you can syndicate or something like that. Is that done in in Canada, in your Canadian uh, corporation, and then that corporation runs a, a single check or or is, is a, a funds actually, how does that work from a syndication perspective? I'm not sure with the question, like how, how do we make the purchase then? Yeah, I mean, normally like we, we syndicate stuff here where there's a, you know, private placement memorandum and um, it, it sounds like everybody's just kind of putting money into into this this Canadian entity uh, and then that entity buys the property. Yeah, and we set it up in a GPLP, uh, Canadian Corporation. So there's a general partner and then the limited partner. Yeah, I mean, this is an example where a lot of people, they, they kind of, uh, you know, they ask questions around the details, kind of like I'm doing now. And, and actually, at the end of the day, they're kind of a little bit irrelevant because your SEC attorney or your attorney handles all the details. It is so, so true. And, and yeah, they yeah. Say, this is the way it needs to be written out to protect right. you, to protect investors. So, yeah, we do count on yeah. that part of our power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 was just, I was just curious, but at the end of the day, a lot of people get caught up in, in the technicalities of that and, and they feel like they need to know all these details before they can do it and it's not true it's like hey you know the professionals will f- you just tell them what you want to what you want to do and they'll figure out the legalities around that and we have recently we had uh, an american couple on on that were actually living in the uk and they were doing some the same thing i also hear a lot of people saying oh my gosh how do i invest out of area right and then listening to you well that's the way you're doing business you're investing out of area what are some of the things that you do you talked about setting up your power team is there anything else that you do to kind of set yourself up for success when you're investing out of uh, out of area well, you got to know what's going on in that particular community too. Like we really concentrate on workforce housing. So we we have a, a demographic that we're catering to and it's workforce people. So we don't buy things like with pools and, you know, all these exotic uh, community areas. It's workforce housing, basic housing. There's no granite countertops. Uh, <laughs> in some cases there's shared laundry. We might put laundry facilities into the unit if it makes sense, but it's basic housing. Got it. So, okay. So workforce housing. So you kind of, let's say that, you know, again, you've got the, the Canadian playground and then you got the U S playground. So you have to pick specific markets inside the U S what, like, aside from your, your power team, what makes you decide to go into a specific market in the U S using the whole, you know, the whole U S as a playground from Canada. So you have any metrics you look at that you like, or? 
Yeah, it's got to be a growing community. Uh, Like we're finding that there's there's lots of really large companies setting up more and more in Memphis, like FedEx and Nike and different stuff like that. So we really get to know what's happening in the area. Is it a growing community? Or if it's flat or stagnant, then there's not as much opportunity. So yeah, really growing community. And and that's pretty easy to find out. There's lots of, uh, you know, reports out there will tell you what's going on in different communities. Got it. Okay. So, so you got some reports, you go in, you look for growing community, but then you're coming, you know, from a different country as well. How do you build trust with the brokers out there that are already dealing with a lot of people that they have relationships with in a new market? Like how, how does that work for you guys? You know, we kind of had an interesting start in Memphis. We actually, how we ended up in the area is one of our partners was working for Canadian REIT, buying uh, properties throughout U.S. for them. And he, uh, with a REIT, there's rules. So with a real estate investment trust, you can only buy so many properties in each area. There's like a diversification thing. And they had got to their limit. They couldn't buy anymore in that community. And our partner approached us and he said, you know, I'm still finding a lot of really amazing deals here. Uh, And he couldn't raise capital himself. He was the deal finder sort of thing. So he brought us in as partners to to fund the deal. And that's how it started. So he was actually working under another umbrella. And of course, they got a big team team members that are vetting the areas. So that's actually how we ended up in that area. Cool. So we shied away from this a little bit uh, earlier, but I am curious, how does a Canadian get financing in the US? Is it just partnering with someone that is a local? Talk to us a little bit about how you've been able to successfully do that. You know what? We're just working through the process, so we haven't successfully okay. done it. Yet. Oh, so you haven't? Okay. Purchase, no, our first purchase, first large purchase in the U.S. was uh, last March, so March of 2020, and then our second purchase was March of 2021. So we're still optimizing those buildings. But mm-hmm. what we're doing in the meantime is we're talking to different lenders. We're we're reaching out to them to see what's feasible. But our understanding is, and of course. We you know 100% know till it's a done deal is that once the building qualifies, the building qualifies. And then from there, it's how you set up your corporations with the help of your, your lawyers and stuff like that and how it needs to work as Canadian owners. So you, so you would do a deal that's cash in the US over a deal that's half financed in Canada right now? Even if you got 50% financing in Canada... It's you're, you've done the last couple of deals you said in cash in, in the US? In the US, we have, yeah. So why is that more attractive than doing a 50% finance deal in, uh, in Canada? You we can't buy a parking lot in Canada for $20,000, <laughs> you know? Cannot. We, and I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, Toronto and Vancouver, like you can't buy a parking lot for $20,000. And if you can't put $20,000 into a parking lot to make it worth more, we can down there. And so it's a case by case basis. We have students buying across Canada right now at, at really decent prices. But nowhere near that. Like we're we're talking decent prices, sixty-five, seventy-five thousand dollars a door, not one fifty or one eighty or two hundred that some of the places are asking for right now. Yeah, you know, it, it it might sound look like from the outside in that you're unprepared, Edna, for this deal. Because we asked you a question about the financing, and you're not exactly sure, but I love that. Because again, a lot of people try to have everything lined up. They want to know every little step all the way to the end. Yeah. Now, why are you doing a deal 
when you don't have all the answers? Like, why would you ever proceed with that? Well, because there's always more than one exit strategy. And I have partners that work on that kind of stuff. Like they're, they're the ones down there. They're working on the ground. They're talking to the different lenders. So we have no problem that it's not going to happen. It's just exactly how it's going to happen. That's going to make a difference. And you know what, Michael, worst case scenario, if we don't get funding, we sell it out at our new price. You know, still good. You probably underwrote it that way. You're like, worst case scenario, I don't get findings. I'm just going to double the price of this thing and we're going to do great. On the other hand, if I do get financing, <laughs> yeah. I'll pull some money out and have cash flow. So either way, you win. It's a really yeah. good point, actually. How do you pitch this to your investors if there's so many different exits and you, you obviously want to plan for the downside risk as much as possible? So like when you're pitching this to investors as an all cash deal or whatever, what does that look like? Well, we have to give them all the nuances that could happen. And of course, you can't project everything in real estate. Anybody who's been in it for any length of time understands that. We deal also only with accredited investors. So their timeframes are different. Their risk tolerance is different, that sort of thing. So we just basically tell them, would you like to buy a parking lot in Toronto for $21,000? Or would you like to buy an apartment building uh, per dollar uh, $21,000? You know, so, cool. you know, it's, it's like, what, which one would you buy? So you compare it to the actual unattractive prices <laughs> in Canada. And you say, listen, we're, we're doing this thing over here. Why not find the Memphis of Canada, though? Does it not exist? No, no, not at those prices. And, and not with any hope for huge increases like that. And I'll give you an example. We bought 144 units in Northern Saskatchewan back in 2012. We're doing excellent with that deal. We paid around 40,000 a door, which by the way, is the lowest we've ever bought anything for in Canada. And it was, it was owned by a charity. So it actually took us a while to make it happen. It took us 10 minutes to put 10 months to pull it all together. But in 36 months, and we knew just from cash flow alone, if we didn't do anything different than what was already being done with the financing we got in place, CMHC financing, 15% down, 85% financing, we knew we could have our investors paid out in four and a half years just from cash flow. But our intention was increase the rents, renovate the units, and make it worth more. So in 36 months, we had done that. And it took us a while because the building was full when we bought it. So it was fully financeable and full. We um, paid out all our investors, uh, took a nice uh, payday tax-free because it was a loan that the building is still paying for. And we still own it to this day. But there's no 3 4 5% inflationary increases. It was all forced appreciation. So you have to take that with a grain of salt too. Also population 3000 people, a lot of people won't even look at that. So it was a whole bunch of people from Saskatchewan, a bunch of us from the North who understood it's the gateway to the North. Prices are probably not going to increase exponentially up there. We were buying it for long-term cash flow. You know what I love, and is that you are overcoming a lot of challenges that will stop most people in their track. They're like, ah, see, it's too complicated, can't be done. And I love that. Can you can you just boil down a few lessons uh, for people watching, listening to this right now, uh, that people want to do what you've done, and maybe there's an obstacle here and there? Like, what are what are some of the key takeaways that uh, that you want to leave people with? Well, whenever you're moving forward, you have to make a decision, and then you make that decision work for you. 
you don't second guess everything that you're going to do because you could drive yourself absolutely crazy. You know, going in that there's certain challenges you're going to face, like we're not going to get three, four, five percent uh, inflationary increases in there. We, If we don't force the appreciation on the building, cash flow is not going to be there. And we also don't put all our eggs in one basket. Like we're in several different communities. We understand the demographics and the industries of those communities, but we're also not scared of smaller communities at all. And a lot of people are. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great. And how can people find out more with uh, more about you, connect with you? Uh, best way to reach me is through my website, which is ednakeep.com. The same email address is edna at ednakeep.com. And uh, I'm all over social media. All they have to do is Google my name. They'll find me. That's right. Edna Keep. Check her out. Edna, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael and Garrett. You know, I really like what Edna said about making a decision and sticking with it. It reminds me of this disease that's called uh, shiny optictitis. That's the one. You know, I used to suffer from this disease, disease Garrett, and you know, because everything there's so much opportunity around there, and and you're you're easily distracted. And I think what she said is make a decision and then just stick with it. And also, uh, making a decision helps you overcome these you know these challenges. And because you can't figure everything else up front. But if you try to do that, you're never going to be successful. So just making a decision right then and there that you're going to take the next three steps forward, knowing that you're going to figure out the next three after that, I just think that's really powerful. It's called building your plane on the way down. So on the way up, Garrett, I, I prefer on the way up. <laughs> it comes, it comes. I, I don't know. I always have this like mental thing that you're like jumping off a cliff and you build it before you, and then you fly up. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> So <laughs> you build it, then it flies, right? So anyways, I think that the, you know, the really good part of this is if you can get comfortable with that and it becomes repetition where it's like, okay, I'm going to step in this. I make a decision. I'm sticking with it. Knowing that you're going to have to pivot somewhere inside of it. You almost get more comfortable with that ahead of time. And it's, it's going to be challenging. And it's, you know, people that fear the unknown don't because everybody goes through the same thing. There's a many, many times where we're jumping into something that we, we are building. We have a lot of expertise. We know kind of what it's going to look like, but you've got, you, there are going to be pivots that happen along the way. Yeah, it's so critical you know, to, to not have to have all the answers. And this is actually a true attribute of entrepreneurs. We just tend to really take action first and analyze things later. I'm not quite wired that way, but I, I recognize that I can't figure everything out right up front. If I want to line everything up right now, it's never, ever going to happen. Therefore, I can do the best I can, make the best incomplete plan I can, and then I execute on that because I have learned over the years that I will figure stuff out. And all entrepreneurs do that. They have a certain a degree of self-confidence that whatever the world throws at them, they will figure out a way to overcome it. And that's really just the spirit. And Edna kind of personifies that. And we do it every single day. I mean, we we do the best we can, uh, you know, Garrett, to come up with our underwriting and forecasting and macroeconomics and this, the other thing and where we think it's going and what we can do. I and mean, we do the best. We really can. But we cannot forecast every single thing. And, and we still move forward. Yeah, we, we move forward in a lot of ways. You know, there are so many things that happen that are unplanned. And so we, we do our best, definitely in our forecasting, just to try to cover that, you know, the fact that that can happen. So, like, for example, every deal that we're underwriting now, 
I'm putting in like 20% economic vacancy years one and two, because I don't necessarily know what the staff might, what happened. Maybe all the staff leaves when we take over the property. There are unknowns that happen that come up, but that doesn't mean I don't buy the deal. We just plan for, we put some cushion in, in stuff to know that errors are going to come up and that we're going to have to deal with them when we get to that point. And not one time now at this stage in the game, are we, are we scared of doing that? Cause we know that we're, we have a power team that we're able to, uh, you know, figure our stuff out. And so part of what Edna did talk about was creating a power team, which I thought was pretty interesting and uh, just, just having the right people around you. It's all about the people around you. I mean, that is it. You know, and your quality of life goes up uh, immensely if you have a high quality team around. If, you, if your property manager is a rock star, your life's going to be very easy. If you have someone who's not so much a rock star, well, guess what? Your life's going to kind of suck for a little while, right? We've both been through that. Yeah. And the biggest challenge are the people that are right in between. <laughs> they, ah, they're the great just zone. good enough. Dag on. You're like, zone. keep them around, but they're not bad enough where you like, get rid of them. <laughs> So those are probably the most dangerous, more even more dangerous than the people that are not good people around you, uh, is those in betweeners. Yeah, that's right. I mean, but but it, you know, at, at, if you're investing out of area or when you just have you have to have a team around you. It, you borrow that credibility, and that track record of your property manager. Maybe you have an advisor. Maybe you're working, you're working with a mentor. You have a, a joint venture partner. We talked about that earlier on the show. All of these people have track record and experience that adds to your own credibility and experience and reputation. So if you want to, you, you can dive into someone's reputation, that's going to help you cover your bases in a way. Definitely referrals on the power team side, I'm sure, and has done a ton with that. Referrals and then reputation, is, it goes a long way. Well, we want to serve you as both active and passive investors. So if you're an active investor, check out all of our resources, including this podcast. We have the book, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing, which is, of course, the same title as this podcast. We have a YouTube channel. We have online courses as well if you want to get started in active investing. If you want to get started in, in passive investing, we talked, we bashed uh, mutual funds uh, kindly today. We have a special report for you. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash report. And it actually compares stocks versus real estate in general and multifamily specifically. It's a great introduction into multifamily investing. And if you're ready to start investing yourself, you're like, okay, I get it, Michael. What do you got? Then check us out at nighthawkequity.com. Click the join button and you can fill out a short form and schedule a call with us. And we'd love to chat with you and see if one of our upcoming opportunities that Garrett is hunting right now is right for you. So I appreciate you guys, your time watching, listening to this. Catch you guys next episode.